Merry Christmas Eve to you all. Wonderful to be here together with you. On each of the four Sundays of Advent here in the month of December, we lit one of the candles you see over here on the Advent wreath. And we lit the center Christ candle tonight before the service started. Uh, From that center candle, we will all light our own candles at the end of the service, those candles you received uh, on the way in tonight, as we pass the flame uh, from one to another, symbolizing that Jesus, the light of the world, has come down into the darkness for us. So I have to tell you, this really is my favorite service of the year. You know, with the lights down low, I can't even see you. I should really be honest about that. I'm sure you're out there. You could easily leave and I wouldn't know it. I'd be up here talking. But I I just love it with the lights down low and the candles burning. Uh, It's just a a beautiful uh, setting. And it just brings me such joy to be with you tonight, singing and, and worshiping with you all. There is a lot of singing and caroling going on in the Christmas season. Everywhere you go, you hear music, and it's a wonderful thing. Tonight, I want to share just a simple thought that may surprise you, and that is that God loves to sing carols, too. That's the title of this Christmas Eve message, that God loves to sing carols. Now, where do I get that idea? Well, from tonight's text in the Old Testament prophecy of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 and 17, and this is what it says. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Does that surprise you about God? Is that the God that you have envisioned or known? Our text uh, begins with this amazing invitation to rejoice and exult with all your heart. Now, exult? When was the last time you exulted? Can you remember? (laughs) Exult? It's not a word we use very often, which is pretty much the point of this message. Uh, According to the Oxford English Dictionary, to exult means to spring or leap up, to leap for joy. Luke, is he's just leading the way here. That's great. Uh, To be elated or rapturously joyful. Well, now you know why we don't get to use the word exult uh, very often. To exult is to discover a joy from really the deepest part of your soul that leaps up within you. Uh, The reason we are unaccustomed to exulting, even on Christmas Eve, is, I think, because we harbor too much fear in our souls and in our world. And nothing extinguishes joy like fear. Uh, Tonight, some of you are afraid because... Maybe this year and this Christmas is far from the one you had dreamed. Uh, Maybe you're far away from the people you love. Maybe the people you love have hurt you deeply. Uh, Maybe people you love have recently died. And all the talk about joy to the world feels meaningless in your part of the world. The world, let's be honest, the world is a mess. 
so full of fear these days. And that's, that's true, yes. But many of us are not living tragic lives tonight, and that's a very good thing. Most of us are just afraid that as nice and sentimental as the news of Christmas may be, the reality is that if anything remotely resembling a Christmas miracle is coming to our home or to our world, then we're a little bit afraid that we're on our own to pull it off. If you're responsible for giving someone a Christmas miracle, then you have good reason to be afraid because it's pretty hard to deliver a miracle. 600 years before the first Christmas Eve, all the homes of Judea were filled with fear. Neighboring empires were threatening to carve up the country and carry it away. The people of God were hungry, poor, and weak. Injustice was everywhere. Religion had turned to idolatry, and it was powerless to offer the people hope or change or freedom. It was then that the prophet Zephaniah began to receive holy words from the living God. Now, those prophets had a tough job. In the desperation of terrible times, the people would turn to them and ask, Why is all this happening? Why is all this happening? Why are things so bad? And sometimes the prophets would explain about sin having serious consequences. They would say, Look, if you worship the wrong God, sooner or later it will destroy you. The heart of Zephaniah's charge against the people comes early in his prophecy. In chapter 1, verse 12, when he accuses them of saying, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. That's what they were saying. The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Whenever a people believe that, it is amazing how much damage they can do to themselves and to the world. And some of the worst damage is done by those who are just trying to save themselves, let alone others. God will not do good or harm to us. He will do nothing. So, we are on our own. You're likely here tonight because you do believe in God in some way, at some level, and you want to celebrate the birth of his son who came to be our Savior. But what Zephaniah wants to know is what difference does that make in how we live day in and day out? Theologians sometimes speak about what they call a practical atheism. We are practical atheists when we believe in God, but we live and act as if God is far away and he's decided not to get involved. He will not do good or harm. He will not do anything. So the miracles are all up to you. The the effects of this practical atheism is that it flattens out our souls over time. Assuming we're on our own, we have to live very careful lives. We have to avoid great risk. We certainly have to avoid the loss of our life. We have to get it right. We have to play by the rules. We have to work hard. We practical atheists tend to see only the thin veneer of the appearances, what's on the surface of life, and have little ability, time, or patience for all the mystery in life. We just want to fulfill our responsibilities and hope it does some good uh, for those near to us and maybe even for those far from us. 
But that rarely leads us to exulting. We're, we're too worn out all the time. And we, frankly, we don't want to get our hopes up. The novelist John Updike has written that Westerners have lost whole octaves of passion. That's quite a statement. Westerners, that's us, have lost whole octaves of passion, speaking about the musical scale. You see, we're desperate to avoid the lower octaves of pathos and sorrow and failure and hurt. So we don't take the risks to reach too high, and we just tend to stay in the safe middle. But that means we also miss the higher octaves of joy that dance above us. And the music of life gets pretty thin without the higher and the lower octaves. No depth, nothing that soars. It, it, it loses its interest and becomes dull and predictable. And that is how fear manifests itself. In most of our lives, that's what it looks like. That's what fear looks like. It makes us dull as we go through the motions. When was the last time? Just think of when was the last time you cried yourself to sleep or read the newspaper and spewed out your coffee in anger? or stayed up all night reading a novel you just couldn't put down, or closed a restaurant with your spouse or friends because you just lost track of time, or spent your vacation in a third-world country, or exulted as you watched, say, a young boy learn how to juggle. Those are the kinds of marks of those who are fully alive and who live in all the octaves of life, the highs and the lows. And frankly, they are not difficult things to do, but they are consistently avoided by those who are afraid of the higher and the lower octaves. Nothing is more dangerous to the soul than living too carefully, which is synonymous with living too fearfully. We may have settled into this fear, but God has not. Praise God. And so Zephaniah prophesied, 600 years before Christ came, he prophesied that a day would come when it would be said, fear not. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. (laughs) Don't be afraid, says Zephaniah. God is involved. The Lord is not only going to come to you, Zephaniah claims, but on the day he does, he will be so rapturously joyful that he will exult and break out in song over you. What a God he must be. For 600 years, from the time of Zephaniah, the people waited for that day to come. That was going to be a day. And they waited. And the promise of the coming day was learned on the laps of parents and grandparents, and a great hope was nurtured from generation to generation. They would say, someday, someday the darkness will be shattered by the glory of God. That day will be so great that God will exult with loud singing. And then, 600 years went by, And on what appeared to be just another dark night in a little town called Bethlehem, just like all the nights before it, 
while some shepherds were watching over their sheep, just like they had done for generations, suddenly the skies were ripped apart by the glory of God. And an angel said, Fear not, there it is again, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. That includes us, you and me. Good news for all the people. Great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The news was so incredible that a heavenly host of angels broke out in that great song. You know, they'd been rehearsing it for 600 years. (laughs) Glory to God in the highest, they sang. And on earth, peace among those he favors. Now, those shepherds were not biblical scholars, and they were probably unaware that the prophecy of Zephaniah was being fulfilled right before their eyes. But the gospel writer Luke knew it, which is why he wove it into his gospel in these verses. More importantly, God knew it. God knew it, which is why he was so excited that he just had to exult by breaking into song. And the reason that this news is so exaltation-worthy is because, look, if God is with us, then we are not on our own. We are not on our own to save ourselves by being careful, working hard, pushing the fears away, pushing the fears away, pushing the fears away, or trying to pull miracles down out of the sky. Anything can happen. Anything can happen among a people who have the Lord in their midst. Do you believe that? Anything can happen among a people who have the Lord in their midst. See, this means there is more than you and I can see. There is also God with us. God with us. That's what the Emmanuel promise literally means. Emmanuel means with us, God. With us, God. Recently, I ran across a wonderful poem by John Shea titled Sharon's Christmas Prayer. And here's how it goes with the quirky words of a little child uh, speaking at times. She was five, sure of the facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said, they were so poor they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat. And they went a long way from home without getting lost. The lady rode a donkey. The man walked, and the baby was inside the lady. They had to stay in a stable with an ox and an ass. Hee hee. But the three rich men found them because a star lighted the roof. Shepherds came, and you could pet the sheep, but not feed them. Then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? her quarter-sized eyes inflated to silver dollars. (laughs) The baby was God, she said. And she jumped in the air, whirled around, dove into the sofa, and buried her head under the cushion, which is the only proper response to the good news of the incarnation. (laughs) God with us. God in the flesh. Jesus the Christ. That's Christmas. Children are so good at understanding Christmas. They know that when you look at something so holy or tell the most embarrassingly special part of the story, the only appropriate response is to dive for the sofa cushions. (laughs) What would that look like for you this Christmas? How could you take some time 
during the rest of this season to not let the busy to-do list take over your life. Anybody working with a to-do list this season? Oh, boy. And instead, you know, dive for the sofa cushions, exulting from your head to your toes, letting down your inhibitions, dancing, smiling really big, laughing a lot, letting your whole body feel the rejoicing of God. The embarrassingly special part of the story is that God is so excited. I mean, God is so excited. He is so excited just to find you. He came for you. So excited to find you that he doesn't care if you are a practical atheist at this point. Because he's not. And he has come to meet you there, right where you are, wherever that is. And he's so delighted to find you, so delighted to be with you, that he has to break out in singing with exultation. Do you see, God is singing over you tonight. Could you hear it? You thought you were doing the singing tonight, and you were. But above and below and in the midst of our singing, God is singing over you tonight. And that is not because you have done a good job on your own so that God owes you a song. No, not at all. It's because in the birth of Jesus Christ, God has found you. God has given you a Savior. God has given you himself. And there is grace and peace and joy and love and forgiveness possible for you. You can be together again with God. Maybe back with him for the first time after many years. Or maybe for the first time ever. Now anything can happen. The Lord your God is in your midst. He rejoices over you with singing He will renew you. That's his promise. He will renew you in his love. That's the kind of God he is, this God who came for us at Christmas. And that means now you and I can dare to venture down even to the lower and up to the higher octaves of life. We can risk, we can dare, we can dream. You can exult. Don't let anybody stop you. Don't hold it back. Don't let your inhibitions hold it back. You can exult. Just remember, your Savior is singing too. So I say, let the exulting begin. Amen? Amen. We've 